This morning I threw the windows of my room open. The light burst in like crystal gauze, and I hung it on my wall to frame. And here I am watching it take possession of my room, watching the obscure love match of light and shadow, of cold and warmth. It is a matter of acceptance, I guess. It is a matter of finding some room with shadows to embrace, open. Now the light has settled in. I don't think I shall ever close my windows again. This Morning by Jay Wright. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Composition Podcast. This is episode 16. Of course, as always, it's your host, Dermaine. Happy Pride Month to you. Um, yes, that opening poem there comes from a guy known as the Poet's Poet. His name is Jay Wright. Now, Mr. Wright originally hails from uh, New Mexico. He was born there in 1934 and spent most of his childhood between Albuquerque and San Pedro, California. His introduction to Navajo and Mexican cultures made it a constant theme within his poetry. And the guy has studied all around. He's earned fellowships fucking everywhere you can think of. In 1967, he was awarded the Woodrow Wilson National Endowment for the Arts, Poets, and Concert Fellowship. Uh, he was already, by that time, awarded the Rockefeller uh, Rockefeller Brothers Theological Fellowship. He studied at Rutgers University, University of California, and he was also granted a Hodder Fellowship in Playwriting from Princeton University. So, like I said, the guy... He's a writer. Um, when I looked him up, I saw that he was the poet laureate of Chicago. And if you've been listening to any of my episodes, you should know exactly what that is. I thought that was a pretty cool callback. So again, shout out to Jay Wright. Um, the poem resonated with me because I feel like it's a way to deal with controversy. It's a way to handle the things that you have to accept. Uh, I believe that the shadow and the darkness in the room is a metaphor for any type of darkness that you could be going through in your life and you can learn to appreciate the darkness or appreciate the shadow that you're living and sitting with when you allow the light in when you take the time to appreciate your silver linings and the the positives and the light that you have even if it's something small you can learn to really deal with the darkness deal with the bad things make it through the bad things because you know that next day you're gonna have some light to shine in on you you can appreciate it and it makes you not want to close your window great metaphor uh huge shout out again to jay wright and yeah i hope you go check out his work a lot of his work is either influenced with mexican culture navajo culture african-american culture and to be quite honest, you will never be disappointed. Jumping right into another culture, DC is decriminalizing weed for jobs. So if a worker fails a drug test, he can no longer be fired by his job for doing so. Now, I'm not sure how it is in Colorado and California places where weed is the culture, but DC is definitely over the last five to ten years been a place where weed is the motherfucking culture so this is kind of a blessing of course it doesn't apply to you know uh jobs where you're operating machinery or working with the public but 
it's definitely a step in the right direction. In a place where most of the land is federal land, and a lot of the jobs in D.C., they, they not really having that shit. So to see where this is headed, that's a great thing. Congratulations to fucking D.C. for that. Hopefully, you know, it trickles down, spreads out into Maryland and Virginia and so on and so forth. But, yeah, this is pretty dope. Um, also coming out of D.C., the Department of Justice has decided to indict former leader of the Proud Boys, Henry Enrique Tarrio. He and four other Proud Boy members were indicted in federal court for seditious conspiracy and other offenses related to the Capitol breach that took place in January. And yeah, honestly, we all thought that it was just like, it was just going to go away and nothing was going to happen. But here we are. Um, of course, I don't wish prison on anybody, especially not fucking federal prison. But it is, I guess, kind of settling for the mind of Americans, especially African-Americans, to see that something like that can't really just happen, can just take place in America. We can just storm the Capitol and, you know, go home to our families. And that's that. Of course, us as black people, we're thinking we would never be able to do something like that. So to see it happen and now it's coming to some type of conclusion, I guess it's, it is settling a little bit. I will say, though, I don't support or believe in any of their stances or any of the shit that they did. But to see that these people are as organized as they are and actually pursue what they believe how they do, and if you know, you know, that, that shit is it's, it's to be commended almost. <laughs> I mean, I don't really want to say it because of what they stand for, but there is something to be said about the man that can organize other men call it what you want but there's something to be said about that if he was to be able to put his 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 leadership in a way that can help all people and not just his specific people this would be a much different ending so um yeah there's that in other news the football gods have shined down on us and Aaron Donald has finally got his contract extension so he will not be retiring anytime soon, thank God. Well, in all actuality, it wasn't a contract extension. It was just a pay upgrade on his current contract. So instead of him making the $55 million over the next three years that he was scheduled to make, he'll now be making $95 million over the next three years. $31 million guaranteed next season. Shout out to Aaron Donald. He fucking deserves it. And he said, if I don't get my money... I'm out of here. He called their bluff and they folded. Shout out to him for getting that Skrilla. And it's actually scary to really think about how good the Rams team can really be. Um, with Aaron Donald being the best fucking player in football defensively. And then they have, in all honesty, one of the most elite quarterbacks of my fucking generation. Matthew Stafford was in football purgatory in Detroit. And now... With him being in, in L.A. for the next few years, these kids might be unstoppable kids. That's hilarious. They're playing football, so my mind just automatically goes there. But, yeah, shout out to the Rams. We'll see what they can do. Shout out to my fucking Steelers because hopefully we can make something shake. But Aaron Donald made it happen, man. Salute to him for that. And also salute to another guy who's now a billionaire, to nobody's surprise, after fucking... 
a, a dominant NBA career, producing movies, starring in movies, producing shows, starring in shows, producing Two Chains albums. <laughs> Luckily, not starring on the Two Chains album, but a huge salute to LeBron James for becoming a billionaire. Again, nobody's surprised by that. We all saw it happening. He's been the greatest athlete probably in our in our generation for the last 20 years. It's either him, Tiger Woods, or Serena Williams, or Floor. It's a lot, sorry. But he's definitely up there. He's one of them. He's a billionaire now, so salute to LeBron. And I really want to take this time to throw in some Space Jam hate, but I'm not going to. I'm really not going to. I have a lot of jokes about how he pocketed money from that movie to get this billion dollars. Because that shit was not. But whatever. Shout out to LeBron James, man. Um, I don't really have too much else to talk about besides our book of the week. And then our music for this week. And our book of the week this week is called The Madness of Crowds by Louise Penny. Now, against my knowledge, it is actually a part of a book series. It's going to be book number 17 in the Inspector Gamache novel series by uh, Louise Penny. Um, all of her books take place in a little village that she's created called Three Pines. And she herself hails from Canada, from Toronto, Ontario. She was born there July 1st, 1958. Happy uh, belated birthday to you, by the way. And she still lives there today. She's a graduate, <clears throat> a graduate of Ryerson University. And the Chief Inspector Amon Gamach series is her bread and butter. So I found this book just browsing through, uh, I believe it was our books, just browsing through. And I saw the booming, bright, colorful fucking book cover. And you know how I am about book covers. You reel me in, I'm going to read it no matter what. But before I go into the uh, book a little bit more, I just want to talk about a few of her awards. I don't know what any of these are, but I have to point out her accolades the same way I do everybody else. So, 2007, she won the Anthony Award for Best First Novel, the Dillies Award, both of those in 2007 and 06. She won the CW, CWA New Blood Dagger Award. She also won the Agatha Award for Best Novel in 07 and 08. In uh, 2011, she won a Nero Award. She's the winner, two-time winner of the Anthony Award for Best Novel in 2010 and 2017. In 2016, she won another Anthony Award for Best Crime Fiction Audiobook. So she's out here getting it done. And she has a book coming out, if not every year, every other year. Maybe twice, two, three times a year. She's really about her business. So shout out to Louise Penny. Um, for me, the book was a little bit on the thicker side. It's 411 pages, so it's not super duper long. But a lot goes on in this book. I cannot lie to you. It took me a minute to read it. It's a really, really vivid book, though. Um, I love when I come across those. This is one of those books that if it, if it gets across the right director, it could easily be a, a great motion picture. It's it's it reminded me of like some Jason Bourne shit for some reason. Like it really was a good one. Um, I can't wait to read, uh, to go back and read the first few books. I can't wait to like process how she's grown as a writer, or to see if she's always had this type of writing skill. Because like I said, it's a really picturesque book. Um, 
Our Chief Inspector Gamach is set to protect a very conscientious figure who's coming into the small village of Three Pines to do a public speaking. She's going to be at a small university, but she's this big time, in my mind, the first thing I thought about was Trump. This Trump-like figure where wherever she, whatever she says is surely to cause some type of contention among the people. So he's sent to protect her. He's supposed to be her bodyguard. And that turns into uh, attempted murder, which turns into an actual murder. And it's his job as the chief of police in this village to solve it. And boy, it is a lot. Great fucking book. Um, again, I wasn't familiar with any of Louise Penny's works. Um, this I just I just saw. I liked the cover, and I just started reading. And I'm glad I did. I enjoyed it. I didn't know at all where it was gonna go. This is one of those books where you're going to be, for you're gonna be on the edge of your seat, for lack of a better term. Like I couldn't guess where it was gonna go. I would stay up fucking hours trying to figure it out, rereading to see if I missed something. And and yeah, the ending was pretty dope. Where am I gonna go for my excerpt? Let's see. So my excerpt is gonna be the entirety of chapter six. Like I said, a lot goes on in this book. So the least I could do is give you this full chapter to try to paint a picture for you to wanna to continue to read on for yourself. If you have the book, definitely open it up pages 37 through 48 for our chapter um the book again is 436 pages i think i said 428 earlier but it's 436 pages from chapter one to the end it comes from minotaur books new york and it is written by louise penny shout out to her all right let's go the reaction was immediate and so overwhelming that it almost knocked Gamach back a step. He heard roars, uproars, before. From the stands during hockey playoffs when the Habs scored, or Grey Cups finals, at concerts, when the group finally took the stage. But this was a whole other creature. He looked out. Perhaps it was the density of the crowd, though he'd been careful to underestimate capacity. Perhaps it was the acoustics in the old gymnasium, but the noise was far more than 500 people should have been able to produce. And he quickly realized what was causing it. There was cheering, shouts of support, chanting, but there were equal parts booing, cries of shame, howls of derision. And there were shrieks. It was impossible to tell if they were cries of support, of contempt, or just from people overwhelmed with emotion and needing to blow it off. It all came together in an acoustic body blow. He stepped farther out from behind the curtain to get a better look. He expected to see Professor Robinson stopped in her tracks or even turning back, backing up. Momentarily staggered, even paralyzed by this assault. Instead, she kept walking, slowly, calmly, as though she were alone in the room. Armand Gamach watched her measured progress through the cacophony and recognized courage when he saw it. But this was not what he'd call valor. It was the courage that came with conviction, with absolute certainty, 
when all doubt was banished. It was the courage of the zealot. And then came the stomping, heavy winter boots hitting the old wooden floor. The place was heaving. Gamach spared a thought for the caretaker, who must have been in despair right about then. At the back of the auditorium, John Guy Beauvoir stood on tiptoes to see. Everyone, everyone in front of him was doing the same thing, and he needed to sway back and forth to catch glimpses of the woman walking, almost strolling across the stage, apparently oblivious to the sensation she was causing. He'd watched the video of her event 10 days earlier. That had been raucous, but nothing like this. From her vantage point on the riser halfway down the room, Isabel Lacoste took in the movement of the crowd. People were swaying back and forth, side to side, like some great churning ocean. Had she suffered from seasickness, she'd have been green. Her sharp eyes scanned for troubled spots, for eddies and surges. This is one of the danger points. When the crowd first sees the focus of their adoration and rage, she looked at the agents she'd installed at various points around the walls and in the crowd itself, some in uniform, some in plain clothes. Inspector Lacoste then turned to the stage, not to the single person on it, almost at the podium, but to the Surete agents lined up in front of it. And then, from the middle of the crowd, like some tribal call to war, the stomping began. Chief, she said, this is about to explode. Hold on, Gamach said, opening the channel so all officers could hear him. Steady, steady, this will pass. He was within 20 feet of the agents lined up in front of the stage. If there was a rush, they'd be first to get it. He looked at their faces, mostly young, strong, determined, eyes forward. He saw the officer in charge of that section say something, and they, as one, stepped their right legs back, a subtle move to brace themselves while not threatening the men and women facing them. None of his agents had a gun. It was far too easy in an unpredictable and potentially violent crowd to have someone take the weapon off them in the melee and use it. He'd seen it happen with tragic results. So Gamach had ordered their firearms be left in the detachment, but they did have truncheons before the doors had been opened to admit the spectators, he'd briefed the agents on the worst case scenario, and he made it clear that the worst case was when the cops, there to restore order and protect people, escalated the violence. This, he held up the bat-like truncheon, is a tool, not a weapon. Understood? We patron, they said. Many were still annoyed at having to leave their guns behind. As Gamach gave them a quick refresher course, Mansour Val, the caretaker, watched, gripping the handle of his mop as though it were a club. These are your neighbors, your friends, said Gamach. Think of them as your mother and father, your brothers and sisters. These are not bad people. They're not your enemy. Do not hit them, except as a very last resort. He looked into the eyes, drilling home this point. They nodded. Then the chief inspector demonstrated how to use the club defensively, to pry people apart if they were fighting, to restrain while using restraint. 
He could see by their faces that they really had no idea what they'd be facing. Many were feigning boredom, implying experience they did not actually have. Because those who'd been in a riot were paying close attention, mostly the senior officers, Lacoste, Beauvoir, and a few others. They knew what could happen, how ugly it could get, and how quickly. When this event was first assigned to him, two days earlier, Chief Inspector Gamache had asked that a single local agent, already on duty, be loaned to him, just for the hour. Then, as he'd learned more about the professor, his contingent had grown to 15 agents, brought in from regions nearby. He'd placed the cause himself, asking junior agents and senior commanders if they'd be willing to join him on that day. None had refused. And now there were 35 Surete agents watching as he went over, quickly, expertly, how to drop their grandmothers to the floor, if necessary. Abigail Robinson had reached the podium. She bent the microphone closer to her and spoke her first words. Hello? Bonjour? Can you hear me? Her voice was calm, cheerful, almost matter-of-fact. It was not what Gamache had expected, nor was it what the crowd had expected. The surge stopped, the stomping petered out, the crowd grew still and quiet, except for, for a few random shouts, and Gamache immediately saw the genius of it. Instead of launching into her talk, she'd greeted them in the most polite, most familiar fashion. And since these were, for the most part, good, decent people, they responded in the most polite fashion. Gamache wasn't fooled. This disarming start didn't miraculously ease all the emotions. It was a respite that allowed Professor Robinson to begin to be heard. Yes, it was brilliant and calculated. She smiled. Oh, good. I'm always afraid when I make what feels like such an endless walk from way over there. She pointed to the wings. To hear that once I've arrived, the microphone won't work. Can you imagine? Now her shoulders rose and she chortled. There was no other word for it. A cross between a laugh and a giggle. It was charming, self-deprecating, and once again, calculated. The place grew even quieter. A few laughs could be heard. The friends and neighbors, mothers and fathers, sisters and brothers were listening, drawn in, far from the frothic man far from the frothic maniac the protesters had expected. What they saw was their sister, their aunt, the woman next door, standing alone on the gym stage, smiling. She wished them a Merry Christmas, a Joyo Noel, a Happy New Year, and a Bon Anit. There were scattered applause for her Anglo-accented French. And then she went into a dissertation, citing figures, dates, data, facts compiled by various sectors, both before and during the pandemic. She cited projections. As she talked, Gamache realized it wasn't just words. There was a rhythm, a cadence to what she was saying. There was a musicality in her voice, a beat not unlike Bach, as she went through the litany of disasters, of crisis facing not just the health sector, but also education, infrastructure, the environment, pensions, jobs, the monstrous national debt 
that would eat the children's futures. What was clear was that there were too many calls on dwindling resources. It was a crisis heightened but not created by the pandemic. The place had grown quiet as she methodically built her case. Her voice never wavered, never rose above a drone. It was calming, mesmerizing, and somehow made what she was saying sound reasonable. The chief inspector knew from years of interrogating murderers that if you yelled at someone, they clammed up. Walls rose, minds and mouths closed. But if you spoke softly, the defenses might drop. At least you had a better chance of it. That's what she was doing. With a melodic voice, Abigail Robinson was crawling into people's heads, mining their bleakest thoughts, drawing forth their buried fears. As he listened, Armand Gamache realized that the chancellor had been right. This lecture on statistics, on mathematics, was also music. And it was art, albeit a dark art. Not at all the sort Clara Moreau created with their luminous portraits. Professor Robinson was, before the very eyes, turning thoughts into words and words into action, facts into fear, angst into anger. It was artful. Abigail Robinson was not simply an academic. She was an alchemist. This was the moment Gamache knew from watching her previous talks when she'd reached the turning point. Having painted a bleak picture of a society on the verge of collapse, she would now offer hope. All will be well. Professor Robinson would tell them what they needed to do to move forward into a bright new world. She would give them her simple solution, one revealed, ironically, by the pandemic itself. Abigail Robinson paused now and looked at the gathering, as did Gamache. What he saw in their upturned faces was desperation. They'd just been through hell. They might have lost their family members, friends. Many had lost jobs. But he also saw hope. Still, he wondered how many who'd followed, the, followed her this far would be willing to take this next step. And he wondered how many who'd come to protest had changed their minds after listening to her rhythmic lit litany of disaster. He could even see some of the agents, especially the younger ones, lined up in front of the stage, turning to grab quick glances at her. Their senior officer obviously said something because the faces snapped back forward. But still, a child was hoisted up on a man's shoulders, then another one. Inspector Lacoste, he began. I see them, Patron, she said. I have eyes on 12 children in the auditorium. Agents are ready to grab them if anything turns. Bone, Inspector Beauvoir, how many children came into the hall? There was silence. Inspector, sir, came an unfamiliar female voice. He's not here, but Inspector Beauvoir did make note. There are 15 children. Merci, Inspector Lacoste, did you hear that? I did, I'm on it. Gamache could see that the press forward had begun. Professor Robinson had come to the moment just. That noise in the auditorium rose as demonstrators awoke from their daze. Shame, they shouted. Too late, the other screamed back. It became a primal call in response, the beating of drums before battle. Where did Inspector Beauvoir go? Gamache asked the agent at the door. 
But there's a solution, he heard Professor Robinson break her silence as his sharp eyes scanned the now pulsing crowd. It takes courage, but I think you have that. He's inside, the agent said. Inside, said Gamache. Are you sure? If it was true, John Guy Beauvoir had disobeyed orders, abandoned his post, and worst of all, brought the gun in with him. There was now a loaded weapon in this crowd. It was not only shocking, it was unforgivable. Yes, sir. Shame, shame, half the crowd chanted. Too late, came the angry response. Money and time and expertise are being spent on what is futile, hopeless, even cruel. Do you want your parents, your grandparents to suffer, as too many already have? No, came the cry from the crowd. Do you want your children to suffer? No, because they will, they are, but we can change that. Gamache stepped out onto the stage, quickly assessing the situation. He saw that while the situation was volatile, his officers had it under control. Still, he could, no one would blame him. But he did not stop it. Instead, he gave a brief, reassuring nod to the nearest agent in the front line, a young man who reminded him of another impossibly young agent from a lifetime ago. The man nodded back and turned forward to face the crowd. But it's not too late. I've done the numbers and the solution is clear, if not easy, Abigail Robinson was saying. If the pandemic taught us anything, it's that not everyone can be saved. Choices must be made. Sacrifices must be made. Gumach kept his eyes forward. It's called, from the middle of the auditorium, there came a rapid series of explosions. Bang, bang, bang. Gamach flinched, but recovered almost immediately. Running to the center of the stage, he pointed into the crowd. Lacoste! On it! He saw her leap off the riser and head toward the smoke rising from the middle of the hall. Saw the line of surete officers brace. Saw the crowd ducking down as it reacted to the explosions. Heard the screams. Saw the beginning of a panic surge for the doors. Holding up his arms, he shouted, Arete! Stop! They're firecrackers, stop! He knew they weren't shots. He'd heard too many of those to be fooled. But the fathers and mothers, sons and daughters, husbands and wives squeezed together in the hot gym had not. It sounded to them like automatic weapons fire. Rat tat 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 tat. And they, and they did what any reasonable person would do. They ducked, then turned towards the exit in the natural instinct to get out. Stop, he shouted. There's no danger. No one was listening. No one heard. He pushed Professor Robinson aside and grabbed the microphone off the podium. Stop, he commanded. Those are firecrackers. Stop where you are now. He repeated it quickly in French and English in a clear authoritative voice until slowly, slowly the panic eased. The surge ebbed, stopping just sort of a crush. Isabel Lacoste found the string of firecrackers, black and smoldering, and held it up. The room began to settle. There was even some nervous laughter as foes a moment earlier smiled at each other in relief. 
And then there was another loud bang and the wood of the podium beside Gamach splintered. This was no firecracker. Gamach knocked Professor Robinson to the floor as another shot hit the stage inches from them. He covered Robinson's body with his own, squeezing his eyes shut and waited for the next shot. He'd had to do this once before when there'd been an attempt on the Premier's life. They'd been out for dinner together at the Bistro Limiac in Montreal and were walking along Rue Laurier one summer's evening. The Sûreté de Quebec security detail was just ahead and just behind the leader of the province as Armand strode beside him, the two deep in conversation when the shots were fired. Fortunately, the would-be assassin was a terrible shot and the chief inspector was quick to react, knocking the premier to the ground and covering him. When it was over and they were safe, the premier, who was openly gay, joked that that would be the photo on social media within minutes. The premier and the head of the homicide frolicking together on the grass. You could do worse, mon ami, said Gamache, as could you. Still, neither man will forget the look on the other's face in those split seconds, as they hit the ground and the bullet struck around them as each waited for the sharp shock as one found its mark. Now Gamach covered Abigail Robinson with his body. To die for the premier was one thing, but for her? Got him, said Lacoste, crisp voice in the earphones. We've got the shooter. Chief, are you all right? We. Oui. He got quickly to his feet and saw that Lacoste and two others had wrestled the man to the floor, but he also saw a terrible sight. Bodies everywhere, hundreds of people sprawled on the floor. He knew, in his rational mind, that they were not hurt, that the only bullets fired had come in his direction. But still, he felt a wave of horror. And then they stirred. Mere seconds had passed since the first shot. He knew this was the gap, the gasp, before the shock turned to real panic. It was that moment of grace when a riot might be avoided. He found the microphone among the debris of the podium and grabbing it, he called for calm, keeping his voice steady, standing visible and, rea and reassuring on the stage, apparently unperturbed. Gamache repeated over and over in French and English that they were safe. He almost said, Ça va bien all will be well. But he stopped himself. The problem was, Gamache had no idea if there was another shooter still out there, or even a bomb. They needed to evacuate the place as quickly as possible, and he saw his agents doing exactly that. Monsieur Vo, the caretaker, was also guiding people to the exits, using his mop to push them along. Abby, Debbie Schneider ran across the stage to where Professor Robinson was sitting. He turned briefly, saw she was unhurt, and told them to get off the stage. As he directed the operations, as the place emptied out, as the Lacoste contained the gunmen, Inspector Beauvoir appeared. Patron, he began, but was cut off. I'll deal with you later, Gamache snapped. Go outside, help the injured. He could see through the open doors the flashing lights of emergency vehicles. In another act, most had considered a vast overreaction. Gamach had asked that the two ambulances and the team of first responders be at the be at the ready. We've secured the gunmen, said Lacoste, 
Search the building, he commanded. Block the roads into and out of the university. Search every person and go over every vehicle. The auditorium was almost empty now. The place littered with boots and toques and mittens. Buttons and papers. A few handbags and knapsacks and phones were on the floor, but no people. The officers not searching the building were outside, along with the paramedics, tending to the shocked and frightened people, checking for injuries, checking IDs, checking for weapons, in case a second attacker had slipped out with the crowd. The, the gunman, head down and cuffed, was being led out the back way. Monsor Vo stood at the far end, by the big doors, gripping the long handle of his mop, a warrior king surveying his land after a battle. Through the open door, through the darkness, Gamach could see the outline of men and women moving in front of the flashing lights of emergency vehicles. People were sitting in snowbanks while others knelt to help. All animosity forgotten. For now. Mansour Vo lifted his mop in acknowledgement as Gamach lifted his hand in thanks. Then the caretaker left and Gamach was alone. He looked at the room and thanked God and his lucky stars that no one, as far as he knew, had been killed. The shock, the psychic damage, would be with each person for, as long, for a long time to come. Could have been worse, came the voice behind him. Gamach didn't turn, couldn't turn, could not stand to look at her. Please leave. You saved my life, said Professor Robinson. Thank you. He continued to stare straight ahead until he heard her footsteps recede and the place again fell into silence. He closed his eyes, and in that silence, Chief Inspector Gamach again heard the shots, the shouts and screams, the wails of the children, and he heard the last word Professor Robinson had uttered. Mercy. The solution is called mercy. And then the firecrackers had gone off, and the shots were fired. But Gamach could finish her sentence. The word she didn't get a chance to say. Killing. But it wasn't mercy killing she was proposing. It was, he knew, just plain old killing. Alright, that's going to be it for my excerpt today. So as you can see from that chapter... Again, she's a very enigmatic figure. She's able to stoke fear. She's able to stoke rage. She's able to stoke hatred. And she does have a lot of, excuse me, a lot of people that's going to support her ideology. And she's able to play both sides against each other perfectly well. Much like many, many figures that you can name throughout history. Um, this is how politics pretty much works. If you want to find a backing, support what those people hate, and then you'll gain fucking attention from the other side, the people that are hated against. <laughs> They're also gonna pay attention to what you're saying and what you're doing, and it just creates this whirlwind of back and forth, and a lot can happen from it. So as you heard in this chapter, there's an attempted murder at a rally. Somebody tried to smoke Professor Robinson, tried to take her out but missed the shot. But plot twist, was it really an attempted murder 
or was Abigail Robinson in on it? Is there another shooter? Who knows? Um, it's a lot. Uh, I will say Louise Penny definitely, she she doesn't let you know where she's going whatsoever. Uh, her her attention to detail really does confuse you. <laughs> the book is so detailed that you're, you you start to question each person's motive. I even started to, to question the inspector, the chief inspector himself. Everyone has some sort of motive, someone that they're protecting, whether it be their children, whether it be their significant other. Everyone loves somebody, and that's the reason why this ideology is so dangerous because it's it's essentially saying if you aren't healthy if you aren't set to a certain standard then we're going to show you mercy and kill you and from there it definitely takes a lot of different turns um i say it turns into a murder investigation because after this attempted murder this is right before new year's at a new year's uh a New Year's get-together where Professor Robinson is again. There's a murder. I won't say who, and I won't say what, but a person dies. It's not Professor Robinson, I'll say that, but from there it goes left. She's investigated as a murder suspect. She's investigated as a victim. There's, there's so much going on here. Definitely go check out this book. Again, it's called The Madness of Crowds by Louise Penny. It's a part of her Inspector Gamot series. This is book 17. Uh, I can personally, I can personally say I can't wait to go back and check out book one. Um, and yeah, let me know what you think about this book on my Twitter at underscore Dermain, my website Dermain.com. I'll have my review there in a, in a bit. And at the Composition Book Club Instagram. Please and thank you. Um, that's going to be it for this episode. I read you that whole chapter, so I'm not even going to do too much talking. Um, let's get into some music, yo. The song I'm about to play is from an artist that recently passed away. Someone I was a, a fan of when they did drop music. Someone who had the streets out here buzzing a few years back. They had women out here sucking on fucking cucumbers. Had the internet up in fucking storms with that shit. A huge rest in peace. To trouble, better known as Marielle Samant Orr. He was born November 4th, 1987 in Atlanta, Georgia. And unfortunately, he was slain recently, June 5th, in Rockdale County, Georgia. But for my spotlight, I do want to celebrate his life with a track I fucking loved when it was out. So let's get into that. Definitely, uh... Let me know what you think about his passing at my Twitter, at underscore Dermain. Rest in peace to Trouble. Go support him, support his family, share his music. Go stream his shit. Our book of the week for next week is called All Boys Aren't Blue. And it is by a gentleman by the name of George M. Johnson. That's going to be my little bit of a celebration in history for her. Pride Month. So definitely go get that book and let's get into this track by Trouble, alright? Rest in peace. My girl, fuck. So you're talking about what? 
Tell me one of your niggas. Tell me one. 